Welcome to the Home of Having podcast, my friend. This is the place to learn how to create a home away from home. I am Nick. I am an interior designer, but also a CRL expat. And this season, I'm on the quest to find out what belonging means. Why? Well, because psychologists claim belonging is what defines the value of our life. And it helps us cope with life when life gets rough. And you don't need to be an expat to know life doesn't get any rougher than when we feel lonely. So I'm inviting you to hear and learn from inspiring people as they share their story and their knowledge on belonging. And then you can make a decision on what a home worth having really means to you. Welcome to this week's episode. Today I'm talking to Martina Famos. She's a counselor and she's focusing on expats who feel like they don't belong and they feel like something's wrong. And she's using the Adlerian approach to psychology. Adler was one of the forefathers of what we call now positive psychology. And you should really stay and listen to this one if you are an expat, because this episode is an eye-opener. Well, hello, Martina. Thank you so much for being on the Homework Having podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here. I would just like to invite you to introduce yourself. Who are you? Where are you? And what is it you do? Thank you also, Nick, for inviting me to this podcast. I'm also really excited. You uh, contacted me or uh, we talked about the feeling of belonging, which is something that is very important. It's at my heart and I work with this every day as a counselor. And the methods I work with is the Adlerian psychology. So there were Jung, Adler and Freud, which were the three big thinkers in psychology. They were contemporaneous living in Vienna. And then through the war, they escaped from the Nazis. And Adler went to the US. And the Adlerian psychology is more popular in the US and in Canada, mm-hmm. in the universities than it is in Switzerland. Okay. Can you give us a little hint why? What's so special about Adler that he saw or communicated differently than his psychology mates? The, the, the big difference between the Adlerian psychology and the other psychologies is that we think final. So we don't think causal. Obviously, when we talk to the client, we go into the cause of where... His thinking has been formed, but then we see human beings as goal-oriented beings. That means we look for confirmations. So what the, the interpretations that we have taken, and we do that as a child, uh, we then want them to be confirmed. So we're always looking for the next step. And that we do with our thinking, obviously. And... Our thinking evokes emotions and according to the emotions, we act. So it's think, feel and act. And Adler was also the one depth psychologist that defined the feelings of or the the, the complex of inferiority. Mm -hmm. And we see the complex of inferiority as as a win and as a loss. So on one side, it's a catalyst. Yeah. To, to move and to strike, but it can also, in certain situations, be a blockage. 
when we are in these feelings of inferiority, we're in a minus mm -hmm. and we want to strike to the plus. So we go from inferiority to superiority. So it's that what we know, it's what we know from movies, that classic from underdog to winner story. For instance, yes. But let's okay. say if, uh, if we're in a situation where we don't feel that makes us feel inferior, Mm -hmm. we, we do something with that. We mm -hmm. do something to then move forward somehow in a plus. We may put others down or we may think low of others or we may make comments or have some thoughts. Yeah, so there's different ways of getting to that plus. And it's, yeah, it's very common now, well, especially in the English-speaking culture, that whole be, do, have movement instead of have to be so the way you perceive yourself acting upon your perception you made uh, you came to a conclusion at some point about something and then you're biased and you're trying to always prove your conclusion which can get like or it's most of the times it's getting into conflict with our critical thinking we have the, the perception and the conclusion you name it conclusion it's it's the confirmation yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. about ourselves, about others, and about the world. So what you do in your daily practice, so you're located in Switzerland, and so you are a counselor, and the way I contacted you is because you are working primarily with expats, just the way as I am. Mm -hmm. And I have noticed certain, certain patterns with my clients, And the way I contacted you to get a different opinion and, well, probably get a confirmation to my perception where this stems from and how I can help my clients better. And during our conversation, the way you work is, well, I let you explain. How do you work with this? <laughs> so, yes, I, uh, I work with internationals. Some are expats, some are migrants, some are settlers. And uh, I had uh, my practice in Zurich until the end of 19. I am from the Romanish, uh, Retro-Romanish part of Switzerland, now where I have brought my work. So I'm not anymore in the German part. Okay. Back yeah. home. And the way I work is actually I'm a, I'm a normal counselor for individuals and couples. Mm -hmm. But through my experience with working with expats, I have detected difficulties, struggles that I could not identify as coming through childhood. And that made me curious because we psychologists, we can all have come from a different direction. But in one thing we agree is that our behavior has the source in our childhood. Mm -hmm. And here we had, I had clients that could not, where, where the threat of how they felt could not be found in their childhood. And then I researched a bit and I found out about culture shock. Mm -hmm. But somehow the culture shock theory did not fully make sense to me. And with the course of time, I, I have established my own theory, which I call the cultural grief. To go into a little bit of detail, if you want, mm -hmm. is that culture shock actually names or describes the consequence of not grieving properly. Okay. So it's, it describes how you feel when you block your own grief. Mm -hmm which is something very common for expats because they don't allow themselves to grieve. Okay. They think something is wrong with them being sad. 
And uh, feeling detached, feeling alone, uh, feeling alienated. So always in the first sessions, clients come and say, something is wrong with me. I'm in a good place. I found a partner. I found a great job. I, we have a beautiful apartment. I have a wonderful family and I'm sad. This is not normal. Yeah, so it's the, it's the feeling of being in a situation of absolute privilege and yet mm-hmm. not being satisfied or missing something mm-hmm. and not being able to pinpoint where this pain comes from. Exactly. And then they, they understand and they can rationally make sense that their behavior is too extreme. Anger is not justified. So they, they, they cannot put these emotions in making sense in a place. Mm-hmm. And then they feel obviously all over the place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my method is to help them understand that they're grieving, that they are grieving for something that we are allowed to grieve for. Uh-huh. That they have left behind friends, family, a familiar environment. They have left behind also a job. And we are allowed to feel sad about this, even if we have moved to even a better place, to yes. a better job, to, yes. to, uh, to something we have decided deliberately to go for. Mm-hmm. One does not exclude the other. Exactly. You can be happy on one side and you can be sad on the other side. It's okay. We are allowed to be sad and happy. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are allowed to be excited and still mourning for something that was also important. Because in that sense, we also need to give credit or to honor what we had. So if we're talking about cultural grief, when you mentioned that for the very first time, it made a lot of sense to me. Because when my clients come to me, there is this pattern that indicates some sort of acceptance. And once they've reached this stage, they come to me and say, I'm good now with who I am and where I am. And I can now finally, I want to move on. So they have acknowledged that it's the end of a road, the travel road, that they are not going to move away again, or that this is now the place where they have arrived. But it's not the end of the road in total. So there must be more. And then they realize they have this sense of self-reflection and identity that comes with place which I find always very remarkable. It's very different than working with expats, than working with people who are local. But you have a very specific method of how you work with those because since I started my own business and I found you over the internet and I saw your website and I thought like, this is exactly the person I want to talk to. But I don't know if it was my entrepreneurial hat or just my own personal bias. I saw the way you work with clients and my instant question was, wow, but who is actually doing that? Because the way you work with your clients is you are not location-based as in such that somebody's coming to your office but you're doing something else do you want to elaborate how how you actually work how a session with you works i had my office in zurich for many years and uh what i did not like about counseling in that way is that people came in stressed out they had an appointment with me which is one hour for a couple Mm -hmm. it's an hour and a half 
it's uh, it's a proven way. It works. It's uh, what we always have done, counselors. What we always, what everybody offers. But the downside of it is that these talks that we have, they are so deep, mm-hmm. and they are so intense sometimes. Yes. And then they leave my room, so they come in stressed. That's already a little bit of a disadvantage for the mm-hmm. client. And then after. An intense talk, they go with this. So in a, in a session, you come so close to yourself. Mm-hmm. You are very close to your everything. And then they leave with this good energy and they go out in a tram, in the traffic, back in the office. And it's just given away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just given away to, to everybody else that does not even bring you something. Yes. And, and then... One week or two weeks later, they come back. And, and what I do now is that I give people the opportunity to take a time out, mm-hmm. a weekend, two week, two days uh, during the week, or even a whole week, mm-hmm. and meet me daily for walks. So we meet every day for three hours. Before the client comes, I do with them assessments by email. So I'm very prepared of who's coming, yes. what issues they have, what goals they have, and a lot about their personality. They choose the hotel, they choose where they want to stay, and then I pick them up there, and we walk. We have time, three hours to talk, which is so much nicer than only mm-hmm. one hour. And then they woke up in the mountains, they had a nice breakfast at the hotel, they come in relaxed, happy, committed. And then we walk for three hours, we have intense talks, but we are in an environment that protects our soul, protects our being. We feel, because in nature, because we are nature, Nick, in nature Uh we always feel that we belong. Uh Uh (laughs) And the feeling of belonging is so important. Yes. If you go into into, a counselor's room, you have to adapt to their style, to their chairs, uh, to their painting. So it's very unconscious, but you you need a moment to adapt in there. And very often clients that came in five, six times, after the seventh time or eighth time, they say, oh, that's a nice painting. Has it it always been there? Yes, yes. It's clearly we are block ourselves, our mindfulness and our, our senses to be able to adapt. Yes. And in nature, we don't have this. In, when we are in nature, we fully open. Yeah. Because there, we are in our space. So that's so beneficial for the sessions and for the ability of the client to indulge in, in the talks and to go deep and to feel secure and yes. themselves. And after the sessions, they don't go back to work. They don't go into the traffic. They go back to the hotel, relax. The talks can sink in. So a lot of our talks go into their cells naturally. They don't have to do anything actively for it. It's just going in and doing its own work. Today we meet again. And the sessions are so much more, so much more successful. So just to sum it up, instead of having the classic situation that you book an appointment with a counselor or mm. with a therapist and you take certain slot out of your busy day in order to go there, sit in an office, sit in somebody else's personal space. And I personally find um, therapist rooms 
very, very awkward from a design perspective because it is somebody else's room, but at the same time, it's trying to be neutral and it's not trying to impose the therapist's personality on the client. So it's this awkward room of somebody else's, but it's not saying anything. And it's from a designer perspective, it's just this in-between space. So instead of taking a certain time slot in your busy day, going to therapy, which is very energy intense, on the one hand, energy draining, but at the same time, very energy giving as well, very transformative. And then having to go back into your everyday life and readapt and being so focused from yourself then all of a sudden facing the outside world again and being confronted with expectations of society or expectations of culture, just traffic lights. You can't walk where you want to go. You have to stop. There is music, there is traffic, there is so much visual and auditive input that can be perceived, well, as an aggression. Mm -hmm. who are not being left alone. You don't have the mental space to rest with your thoughts of what you've just been through if you are in a cultural environment like a city. So you take your clients in, out into nature. They take a weekend off or a certain amount of time. And coming back, before you explained that to me, now it makes perfect sense. But my first impression was like, wow. Therapy is still something that is stigmatized in our society as something negative, as something like the last point of resort to go to when you can't cope by yourself. People who go to therapy or who need therapy are considered or sometimes think of themselves as somewhat broken. So it is something that a lot of people have a lot of resistance towards too. And then seeing your offer came back to me. I thought, wow, go and see somebody that I don't know. Take a whole span of time, two, three days. Book a hotel. Book. It's just this huge investment, not just from my personal self, but also in a monetary measure and not knowing where this is going. And you said something very specific that just opened myself up to my own limitations of thinking. You said to me that my decision-making criteria do not apply to everybody else. So my decision-making criteria being the money and not knowing you, having this trust issue, that doesn't apply to everybody. Other people have other preferences. And I think that just sums really up what the biggest benefit of counseling is because you are getting confronted with your own limits and that you can see one problem or one issue or something that is bothering you, a point of frustration, through talking to somebody from a complete different point of view. So when we talk about expats, is there a common thread, a common theme that people come to you with? No, I, I couldn't say that. A common okay. Thing. It's okay. Uh, so individual. And I think all, ultimately, I mean, in the depth of everything and what results is that we all need to find our way how to deal with, with our insecurities, mm -hmm. with our inferiority complex, because we all have them. Yes. 
because being human is feeling inferior. Yes, and also being an expat is the conscious decision to become a minority, literally, as people, because wherever you go, and there will always be more locals than there will expats. And even if you're just in a group of expats, the likelihood that there is somebody just like you from the same country with the same background is just so slim that, yes, you are one of a group and you have some certain connection point to belong to, but you're still inside this group. This group is not homogeneous. It's just there's a lot of diversity. Yes, but in our, you know, in our core, in our core wisdom and everybody, there is, they may be suppressed, but it is there, the understanding that we belong to humanity. Yes, so knowing that we, because we all have this and, and it's the ultimate truth, we all belong to humanity. When we move to somewhere, we go with that trust. It's a deep trust that we all have. But then with the events that happens, we may lose that trust for a moment. Moment can be a few months or even a few years, or it can even gone lost for a whole life. But we all have that. We all have the knowledge, as deep as it is, that we belong to humanity. We don't belong to a group. I know, but I have made for myself and from what the work I do with my clients, it's very often, it's so easy to see, even though we're all humans, it's always easier to see the differences than the commonalities. And you said something, you called it, that people lose their trust because they feel like it's based on conditions. Their mm -hmm. belonging is based on conditions. Mm -hmm. And it is true. Because as an expat, I, from my looks, I am white. I have green eyes. So from my looks, I fit in. But as soon as I open my mouth, people hear my accent. And that's the first thing they attach to. It's like, oh, but you're not from here. Where are you from? So it's making, even if it's in a friendly way, it's pointing out the differences. So another thing you said was staying with the, with the feeling that your belonging is based on conditions. So there are certain codes of how, of how we behave and how we behave maybe differently. And what is tolerated and what is not tolerated in the society that you live in. Can you help us a little bit with that in the context with the grief and the stages of, of grief? And how do you get to the acceptance at the end? Well, when we are grieving, we're in a vulnerable state. And the people around you cannot know. So, for instance, back in time, black clothes were reserved for people grieving. Mm -hmm. And so we knew that person is grieving and that helped us socially to then be softer to that person. And it, helped, it, it protected that person. Uh -huh. And today everything is mixed in. Yes. It doesn't apply anymore. And which is a shame, I think. It, it, these are helpful indicators. Exactly. Uh -huh. Very helpful indicators. But how would you indicate yourself or show others that you're an, an expat in a vulnerable situation? Of <laughs> All right, we would need to create a, uh, yes. a, a code or something. But it's good if you yourself, you understand, or the person grieving understands their own vulnerability. When you accept your own vulnerability, you also know what is good for you, what is not good for you. You're also more courageous to express that. So if you come into an awkward situation, 
you can uh, express yourself. You can say, yeah, I'm a bit lost right now. I'm new in this place and I feel a bit fearful to do something wrong. And the more you express your vulnerability courageously, not to seek pity, but courageously just for yourself, the more you make yourself understood. And, uh, and that helps. But it also helps to say, no, I allow myself to retreat for a while because I'm too vulnerable to put myself in this situation. So we have a choice. We have a choice to withdraw for a good reason and we have a choice to show our vulnerability for a good reason. Uh I just encourage, you know, as soon as you understand what's going on, you're with yourself and you can apply self-integrity and be a good friend to yourself. But if you yourself don't know what's going on, It's difficult. When you don't realize that you're grieving. Yes. So would you say, are there any signs? If somebody is saying like, I'm not entirely sure if this is grief or if this is just me being difficult. A lot of people tell themselves, I'm just being difficult. Just get over it. What would be a sign of grieving? Sadness is a clear sign of grieving. And before I mentioned that we're sad when we, when we left something behind. We're sad when we don't have something that was important to us. And we can be sad and happy at the same time. But we're also, when we move, we also lose our identity. So exactly. we're sad within ourselves. Yes. <laughs> Not only sad about something. So sadness and unfortunately... You know, we have, a, we have a strong pharmaceutical industry and all connected to it. And sadness is often categorized as a depression. Uh-huh. It's not the same thing. Way, uh-huh. way too early. And yes. it's actually a mess right now, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> it's uh-huh. a mess because everybody's sad, says I'm depressed. Or if we see somebody mourning and mourning too long, we, we say like, now I think you're going into a depression. Yes, yes. And sadness is a normal emotion. And the more we let, the more we accept the sadness and the more we accept the crying, the better we heal. Because crying heals. Crying is the the physical mechanism to reorganize our brain. Crying is good, but people think if, if I embrace in this emotion of sadness, it'll make me just sadder. Mm hmm. But this is not true. It may make you sadder for a moment, but then you're on a healing process. It's a way of letting go. Letting go, yeah, or Mm. accepting. Accepting. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, sadness is an indicator (laughs) that that we're grieving for something. Okay, so what I would like to ask you is, as we mentioned before, there is a heavy stigma on what counseling or therapy is. And if we talk about grief... The first association we all have is grief when we lose a loved one. And there's more acceptance to the grieving process. And there are certain mechanisms, I would almost say, that society puts in place. Like you don't leave the grieving person alone. You check in. You make sure that for the first time there, everyday basic life is getting a bit easier. Some people get their food cooked. Some people get help with the kids. They get help with the household. There's mechanisms. And when a person in the grieving situation wants to talk, they usually have their entourage, other family members, friends, um, whoever knew that person that is gone as well. And there's a way of talking to that. And even if you don't have that, 
in the religious circle, you could go talking to a priest, talking to somebody, which is in the end a counselor as well. With expat, we're not talking about losing a loved one. Well, we, we did lose loved ones because we left them behind. We left people behind uh, for, for good reasons, for reasons we were maybe even excited about. But it's still leaving behind a certain kind of love that you are not able to receive anymore on the everyday basis. If I would ask you, what is your definition or your interpretation of counseling or therapy? What would you say? Hmm. My definition, it's something natural. Uh, what a counselor can do, what others or other, what others are very challenged in doing is to stay neutral and to not expect. We're social beings, we're in good and in bad times. But sometimes if you are in a difficult situation, your loved ones or people closer to you, they want you to get out of that bad state. They, are, they feel upset as well. You suffer with them. So you try to accelerate uh, the healing process and the person suffering can feel this pressure. And also if we're close to somebody, it is difficult to give an opinion that is completely open. We all try to have, to keep in a connection or the counselor does not have that. The counselor is not involved. Yeah, so the there's no personal affection and no personal no. involvement. Exactly. Just empathy. Yes. But the counselor can accept the decisions. And when we are close to somebody, uh, we have a hard time accepting certain decisions because we have hidden expectations even mm -hmm. or, 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 or even conscious expectations. Yes. So counseling is a very good source for finding help. And I see it as something completely natural because we go, we go and ask our friends for opinions. We go and ask books. Yes. <laughs> for, for, we've tried to find answers in books. It's something natural. So from a, from a client perspective, for me, it's all clear to us what we expect the outcome to be of, of counseling or therapy. It's to find an access point to the path to healing. But from your point of view as a therapist, as a counselor, how do you know at the end of the day that you did a good job? Or how do you know that you can be satisfied with yourself? When do you, or even pride, when do you feel proud of what you have accomplished? Because your work is so intangible. So people come with a pain. Everybody comes with uh -huh. a pain. And the, the fulfillment I have is when clearly the client says, I understand where the pain comes from. Uh -huh. And I now understand how I do not cause this pain or uh -huh. I don't let this pain happen. And I have now the tools and they work. And when the client or when I see and when the client confirms the, the transformation that they have gone through. Okay. This, this is then at the end of the work. But in every session, I have fulfillment every moment. It's already a fulfillment if a client reaches out, right? Uh -huh. Because then I have built a connection already without knowing Yes. And building this connection starts already there, but it's also during the walks or during the session, this connection is just so fulfilling. To me, it sounds like 
there is a person on the one side being in pain and knowing intellectually that there is a better point or the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, but mm -hmm. still seeing the fence as there's no way I can get through this. Mm -hmm. And then it sounds to me like you are showing your people that there is no fence. There's just a way. It's not instant, like you are here, then there is a fence or a wall. And on the other side, it's, it's not that close. Mm -hmm. It is maybe in the, the, the distance you have to, to walk from A to B is a lot longer. But so there is no fence. There's just a way. Sure, no fence because it's all in us, you know, and we don't have yeah. that inside. But we, we, the thing is, you know, we have all our senses are out Mm -hmm. uh, to the outside world. We, we have our ears to hear what's happening outside. We have eyes to see what's happening outside. We have a nose to smell what's happening outside and a mouth to bring things out. But the senses to the inside, they are so fine and they are not easy to get in touch with. Uh -huh. But once you get in touch with them, then they become, come wider and stronger. And you start to understand the signs that come from the inside. You start to understand your emotions. You start uh -huh. to understand the, the physical reactions that these emotions do. So your senses start to grow towards the inside. And that's a transformation when you see, ah, it's actually not the outside, it's the inside. You build a control mechanism with your knowledge and your wisdom to make choices that work better for your inner world. I love that. I love what you're saying because my work is very much focused on the outside world. And when I work with clients, obviously with interior design, it is often this notion of knowing there is something not the way you want it to be and then almost overcompensating with external stuff, the better house, the better car, the more, the better quality. So my business is called a home worth having. And I'm not the kind of designer that is fixed to a certain style, but is more focused, as you said, on the internal values that a person um, is appreciating and how then to manifest and how, that, how to make that then visible in their home environment. But it's not about more, better showing. It's not about this compensation that whatever is missing inside you, this lack, yeah, this lack can't be compensated from the outside. But at the same time, whenever I ask my clients, what is the one thing that you don't want to miss in your home? If we build a scenario of your house is on fire, you can just take one or two items. What do you grab? What is so valuable that you would basically risk your life, get it out before you save your own life. So talking now about you as, as a person and not just a therapist, what was the last time you bought something for money that really gave you a big sense of appreciation that you really cherish in your home? You have an example? That I bought for the home. Yeah, that's something about your house, your home, your environment. I'm just talking monetary investment. Yes, I have decided to change my lifestyle. I don't buy new things anymore, almost. The last new thing I bought was a good jacket, a warm jacket. Otherwise, I really, really try to not make people produce for me anymore. And what did I buy? A candle. <laughs> okay. It's a beautiful candle. 
and you can refill it. The outside is, is a candle material that does not burn and inside it's filled with candle that burns. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's very interesting, something that is basically never running out of. Yeah, and what I would take with me if it burns, obviously it's things that connect to people, to my father that has passed away, things that I have in the house that connects me with him. Okay. So the things that have the most value for me. And when we talk about you as a person, the way you see yourself, what is the one thing you wish people could see or know about you just by entering your house? That I believe in simplicity and clarity. To me, space is important, light, that helps me to have clarity. And I don't like to walk around things. You mm -hmm. know, I want to have a free path. That's what's displaying in my house. We can see and we can tell by the sound that there's not much soft furnishings. Yes. that will swallow. So what I often get with my clients that are used to vaster spaces, especially from the American, from the US and from Canada that are used to a lot more space, is that they say in Europe, they are lacking a feeling of generosity. And giving yourself space as in volume is a sense of generosity towards yourself. Well, Martina, thank you so much for this interview. This has been so many wheels are turning and I can't wait to hear and read the reactions from my audience. I'm sure a lot of people will have a lot of things to talk about or to think about for themselves or with their loved ones. Where can we find you if people want to connect with you? Where can people in contact with you? Through my website, Martina hyphen famos.ch okay and famos if the people <laughs> with other language background don't don't know famos in german means brilliant yes it's like or it's famous famous and i spell famous without you yes it's like the english word famous without the u <laughs> in german means brilliant um, great so um, <laughs> that is that is a very nice name to have If we end with one last nugget of wisdom, something that you would share with the people out there, is there a wisdom, a quote, a saying that you know for yourself to be true and that you would people to think of more? Or is there something from your point of view as where you stand in your profession and as a person that is absolutely clear to you that other people might not see yet? Is there something that you would like to share? Yes, I keep it in this context, Nick. I would like to share, again, I said it before, we all belong to humanity. Uh -huh. And if we have feelings that makes us belonging, doesn't mean that we have to love and like everybody, <laughs> but that we belong. That if somebody has a lack of that feeling of belonging, then I encourage everybody to, to do something about it. A nice feeling to feel that you belong and that you belong to humanity as a whole. And we deserve. Brilliant. Martina, thank you so much. It was so, so helpful. I know that I will have tons of things to, to think about, to um, talk with my husband with, because he is, we're both from different cultural backgrounds and now both living together in Switzerland. Um, there is a lot of material that, um, a lot of talking points 
mm-hmm. that can start on. Thank you so much. Thank you too, Nick. We will link your website so people can find you and get into contact if they're interested in your approach of having therapy, having counseling in a very relaxed and different way mm-hmm. than your every, everyday situation. Yes. Thank you so much. Ciao, ciao. <laughs> So here we go, my expat friend. You are not depressed. You are experiencing cultural grief. And if you asked me about the one thing Martina taught me, it's this. Yes, you chose this life. Yes, you are responsible for your decisions. But also, yes, it's hard. And there is nothing wrong with you because what you are experiencing as an expat is not only lavish novelty. You are also experiencing a loss. You are not spoiled, you are not being difficult, and you are not depressed. You are sad because you're grieving, and feelings are fulfilling, not only the good ones. You did not only leave behind the bad, but also a whole lot of certainty, and it is shaking you. It would shake anybody. But this situation is not final. It has a very specific cause, and there are things you can do to change that. If they say the opposite of novelty is wisdom and certainty is comfort, where can you tune down the novelty and find or recline back on your own wisdom so that you can find more certainty, comfort and belonging? If today's episode resonated with you, if you found value in it, please let me know through a review or tag me on social media so I can provide more content of significance for you. And if you feel generous, please share this episode with your friends or that one person you feel will profit from this the most. And if you're interested in talking more to Martina, find her on the web under martina-famos.ch. This was for you, your designer friend Nick from A Home Worth Having, Talk to you soon again. Au revoir.